I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Essential Geopolitics podcast. My name is Emma Kami, and I'll be your host today. Recent weeks have seen speculation that a Ukrainian offensive may be imminent. There have also been new raids by anti-Putin groups into Russia and signs that the Wagner Group's feud with Russia's Ministry of Defense is continuing. Here to make sense of it all and what it means for the future of the war is Matthew Orr, Eurasia analyst at Rain. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start us off, uh, what is the latest information regarding Ukraine's preparations for a potential offensive, uh, and what could that look like? Yeah, so we don't receive you know daily updates about how, how these things are going because obviously information about the preparations are, are very sensitive. Um, what we do see in, in Ukrainian media, social media, are re- repeated reminders not to you know film or publicize in any way uh, information about military movements on the territory of Ukraine, things like the movement of, of vehicles, uh, uh, you know, other equipment needed for the offensive. Um, that itself is a, is a sign that these these preparations are still underway. But what is definitely in the public sphere is information about, uh, you know, new weapon systems that the Ukrainians are, get, are getting, uh, particularly notable uh, of late, uh, are these storm shadow missiles, uh, which are, are an air-launched an air-to-ground missile that the Ukrainians received uh, a couple weeks ago, that uh, is 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 a, is, a, is actually a potential game changer in the way that it will in, in not only increase Ukraine's stri- potential strike range, uh, but is a, would be a very effective weapon to use uh, against all kinds of infrastructure that would have previously been out of range, things like airfields, uh, other bunkers, and of course, uh, as has been much talked talked about, it's a potential weapon that could be used against. Uh, the Kerch Strait Bridge, uh, which, which is of, of course what connects Crimea with the, with the rest of Russia, so that in itself, that announcement is also a, a very notable sign um, that uh, a, a a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, could be imminent. As far as what the offensive would look like, um, we tend to think that the the ultimate target of the offensive is going to be in the Zaporizhia region. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, we it's it's pretty clear that the the offensive will you know have elements and actions taking place along most, if not all, of the front. Uh, one reason for this is that the Ukrainians don't you know want to keep the main thrust of their offensive uh, secret until relatively late. Uh, they also you know are 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 going to try these multiple attempts to break through the Russian lines. Uh, and then are really going to, you know, adapt their offensive based off of how things go, where where these breakthroughs are more or less uh, uh, successful. So there's there's definitely a certain amount of, of, of flexibility, but ultimately, you know, the the, the a, an attack due south through Zaporizhia is really the the place that's most likely to to give Ukraine the strategic benefits that you know make the 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 offensive worth it. Uh, if we look at some of the other options, we can start, you know, on the northern part of the front around uh, in the Luhansk region around Kharkiv or to the east of Kharkiv. There, that's where the, the Russian positions are likely the, the least lightly defended uh, in terms of the, the fewest numbers of troops and most likely the, the fewest number of built fortifications. 
the problem with attacking there is that it, it just builds a salient kind of deeper uh, deeper behind Russian lines that's actually quite exposed uh, and doesn't really contain any strategically significant um, objects or geographic barriers that necessarily help uh, the Ukrainians uh, bring it into the war. Moreover, uh, politically, it's not an area that taking would have any meaningful uh, ripple effects inside Russia. Then if we go further down south, we can obviously get into the central Donbass region around Bakhmut, etc. There, an attack is also, uh, it's, it's more likely than up around Luhansk to be the main thrust, but it also comes with kind of questionable strategic um, benefits uh, that, that the Ukrainians could seek to um, uh, push the front line away from Bakhmut, try to encircle or destroy many of these Wagner group forces that have been trenched around the city in recent weeks before they have time uh, to, to, to really build the fortifications that we've seen in other parts of the front. Also, given the recent feud with Russia's Ministry of Defense, uh, you know, destroying some of these forces may be uh, may have a particular political effect inside Russia that the Ukrainians might want to induce. But again, uh, it's not clear that really taking any of, of, of any territory, cities, etc., in this area is enough to really um, get Ukraine that much closer to actually ending the war or winning it. Uh, and so, therefore, it, it seems like an attack in the south is the is the most likely place. So that's supported by some, you know, circumstantial evidence that we've seen, where these Russian occupation authorities um, have made a big deal at the, about evacuating these areas and shown that they're they're likely going to leave them. Um, uh, moreover, the south is really the place where Ukraine can take the strategic territories, objects, um, uh, barriers, etc., that it needs to actually. Uh, deal a, a defeat to Russia and actually trigger um, a lot of a lot of the, the the political processes inside Russia that are necessary for Ukraine to win. Uh, so that's why they they would most likely want to cut off the the supply to Russian forces in the region by striking due south um, towards the Sea of Azov. Once those troops are isolated, then they can really set themselves up for future offensives to target other places like Crimea or, or turn back to the Donbass. Um, the problem with this variant, of course, is that it, it's, it's you, you could say, the most likely area of attack. And so, therefore, um, it's, it's not exactly clear um, you know, that this is an area that they can easily move forward in. But really, I think that an attack in the south is, is what we're most likely to see. Right. So much ink has been spilled about uh, Wagner Group's head Yevgeny Prigozhin's feud with Russia's military leadership. Um, there was another raid by anti-Putin militias into Russia in recent days. Uh, what happened and is there any relationship between these developments and Ukraine's potential counteroffensive? Yeah, but both of these topics have gotten a lot of media coverage recently. I think that they're both interesting to think about um, with regards to the future offensive. Um, let, let's start with these recent raids, the kind of more recent incident. Uh, I think that it, it's clear that while these were conducted by you know, Russian citizens or, or people from Russia, um, this is clearly being done as part of a, an action related to uh, the impending Ukrainian offensive. Uh, the idea is that you know having these anti-Putin forces conducting these raids into Russia uh, creates a, just one more uh, political military uh, issue that the Russians need to think about uh, because these these raids um, are you know somewhat controversial uh, inside Russia and, and draw a lot of backlash, which is why the Russian official authorities and rhetoric uh, don't don't recognize they try to to downplay significantly 
the 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 Russian origin uh, 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 of these militias conducting these attacks. They they essentially just call them Ukrainians. They say that these are Ukrainian formations, um, and that's because they 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 definitely want to gloss over and not draw attention to that idea that right there's 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 other people claiming to be Russians that claim to be you know taking and occupying areas of Russia um, because that creates a certain amount of pressure. Um, on the Kremlin. And so the idea is that the Russian Ministry of Defense, which is also responsible for protecting Russian lines in Ukraine, would now have to spend more resources to also better defend uh, Russia's proper borders um, with with Ukraine. And so even if it's not like, of course, the, the Russians would never take forces out of Ukraine to defend these parts of Russia, even, you know, various forces still training in Russia, um, or, or, or just other security forces in Russia um, uh, that could be used in Ukraine at a future point might have to instead be used in these border um, areas. As far as, yeah, the Russian Ministry of Defense and, and the, 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 the controversy with Wagner, um, I, again, I think that that's, that's uh, a, a place that the Ukrainians are definitely you know, watching with close intent. Um, Ukrainian officials you know, often comment on uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin um, and and the Wagner Group, um, uh, uh, and, and and try to really uh, continue continue the controversy and fuel the controversy because they think that it's uh, it's it's a way to politically kind of uh, destabilize and upset Russia ultimately in the future. Um, although to be perfectly frank, I'm skeptical that we're going to see this feud uh, blow up in such a way that it you know actually has meaningful political effects inside Russia. Uh, I think the bigger effects of the feud are just the, the on on the ground challenges that it's creating for the Russians. It's um, it's it's leading to a lot of uh, competition and animus between Wagner and, and the Russian the, the Russian army, the regular army, uh, and it's really hard to understand how that's actually beneficial to to, to Russia's uh, war efforts in Ukraine. You have the, you have um, you know distrust of leaders, distrust of soldiers from the other group, uh, the, the the fight for resources, etc. Uh, and so I, I tend to think that for a whole a whole host of other reasons, um, the the Russians are are, are going to try to really limit that feud. Although I don't think that'll be entirely successful, because I think that while the Wagner Group's role in Ukraine is going to fall, uh, I think that they're they're still going to play a niche role in, in the Russia-Ukraine war. The the Wagner forces um, not being part of the Russian regular army offer all kinds of benefits compared to regular Russian soldiers um, that we we've detailed in a lot of our writing about this. Um, and so, you know, I think Prigozhin individually uh, is motivated for several reasons to essentially continue the feud. So I think that that's you know, not necessarily a good thing for the Russians um, ahead of this Ukrainian offensive. And what exactly are your expectations for the counteroffensive um, and how does it figure into the overall trajectory of the war? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm somewhat... You know, I like a lot of people are, are, are you know, definitely, it, it could go a lot of ways. There's a, just an inherently large amount of uncertainty in military operations, um, particularly with regards to, to Russian morale. Um, we, we, just, we just don't know how some of these Russian mobilized, uh, I want to emphasize that point, a lot of these Russian soldiers are, are mobilized now that are manning these front areas. It's hard to say kind of what their motivation and training, uh, you know, how high, how quality, uh, those things are and, and what that how that will reflect in their their willingness to defend. 
Um, but that being said, I, I think it's, you know, the, we definitely need to check our expectations, um, specifically in the South, if that is indeed going to be the thrust of Russian efforts. It's a very well-defended area that they've, they've made an, you know, a multi-echelon uh, defensive structure there and, and built fortifications. Um, so I'm somewhat skeptical that we're going to see, you know, rapid Ukrainian gains uh, that we saw in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine's previous offensives around Kherson and Kharkiv. But I tend to think that, you know, the Ukrainians have a lot of modern equipment and, and a lot of mobilized uh, soldiers with, you know, relatively high motivation. You know, hopefully that high motivation can compensate for their somewhat limited training, although that training was conducted, you know, with, with NATO instructors. And so I, I, I think I think we'll see. I think that we can expect the Ukrainians to make some modest um, gains. And what I want to emphasize here is that I think modest gains, you know, can uh, have major strategic benefits for Ukraine. They don't have to get that far to really complicate the Russian logistical situation in the South even further. And they don't really have to get that far in order to, you know, continue to to uh, uh, build political conf- controversy about the about the war um, in Russia and force more Russian mobilization met measures, which are unpopular, etc. At the same time, I. I, I, I am kind of skeptical that this offensive on its own is, is going to be enough for, you know, the Ukrainians to put the entire war on, on a trajectory that means they're going to win. There's still a lot of doubts about the West's ability to support Ukraine in the long term. Um, that's being brought up even more recently as, as we go into this NATO summit um, with Ukraine that's supposed to take place in July. Uh, and there, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the future of Western support for Ukraine. The problem is that a lot of that support as of right now is being doled out on, on essentially on a one-year, you know, f- you know, fiscal year basis um, in a lot of these budgeting documents uh, instead of how military support, for example, by the United States to other countries such as Israel works, where a lot of that military support is, is locked in years, up to, up to 10 years in advance. And so I think what would go a long way um, in really changing the Russians' calculus and making the Ukrainians much more likely to actually emerge victorious in the war overall would be for the, the United States in particular and, of course, uh, other NATO allies and the wider world to really think about how they're going to lock in, preemptively lock in a lot of military support for Ukraine, not just on a one-year basis, but on a five, ten-year basis, um, because that's something that could actually put the war on a different trajectory uh, and change the Russians' calculus. Well, thanks very much for that analysis, Matthew. You can learn how geopolitical events like this could affect your business with Rain Worldview. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with the access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening. Thank you.